thank you so much for making time to be here today. I'm so happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, uh, as you know, we start every podcast the same way uh, with the same question, which is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? My name is Lindsay Pollock. I'm the author of four career and workplace advice books, and I'm a professional speaker. I started as a college campus speaker uh, and have evolved to speak on college campuses and to uh, companies and law firms and organizations. And what I love about I do what I do is I always love being a student. My parents are both educators and kind of what I do is I read a lot and I write a lot and I get to give oral reports uh, is basically my speeches. So I found a way to kind of turn being a good student into a living. That's awesome. When when did you know that, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of friends uh, I think are really smart people, but not a lot of them are really excited to give the oral reports in front of large <laughs> audiences. When did you know that you could, you wanted to do that and that you would translate your skill set to doing that? You know, I've reflected on this in the past because I didn't realize it at the time, but in third grade, I wrote an essay on what I wanted to be when I grew up and I wrote writer. And then in sixth grade, there was a storytelling contest and I told the Shel Silverstein, the giving tree story and I won. And I had not even thought out that outcome, but it just sort of sparked something in me that said, huh, like I like doing this. And then flash forward to graduate school, I won a Rotary Club scholarship, you know, sponsored by local Rotary Clubs. And part of the scholarship was that you had to give speeches at Rotary Clubs. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. And when I came back from the experience, I had like an exit interview and they said, did you give your required number of speeches? And I panicked and said, well, I I don't know. How many was I supposed to give? And they said, well, the requirement was four. And I said, well, I did 39. (laughs) So I realized like maybe there's something about this that I'm starting to enjoy. And that really is how the writing and speaking came together. That's awesome. I'm I'm really curious. So my wife and I... um... Uh, worked with an organization called Teach for America back in the day. And we've got a lot of folks that, you know, are younger in the career trying to get advice from us now that we're much older. Uh, And I think about, you know, I'm fascinated with what are people's journeys. So when you went to undergrad, when you went to grad school, what did you study and what did you think you're going to be doing with your life at any of those points? I had no idea I was going to be doing this. My college roommate did Teach for America. Um, you know, it's really interesting, and I and I talk about this a lot because I think it's a disservice, is I was a good writer, and I was really good at speaking, and everybody said, you should be a lawyer. And mm. it wasn't really about any interest in law. So, of course, I, you know, thought about taking the LSAT. I, I really thought about that path. And I thought that was sort of an unfair assumption that anybody who likes to write and speak should immediately become a lawyer because I think it derailed me. Um, for a few years. I was very fortunate to win that Rotary Scholarship, which took me off of the path of having to get a job right out of school. When I came back from uh, Australia, I should say I started as an English major because my dad was a high school English teacher. um, And I hated all of the major English poets and the Shakespeare and all that. So I actually switched my sophomore year to American studies, which was a much more integrated political science, history, English. And I loved that interdisciplinary Angle. It was supposedly less prestigious than English, but I got really into that interdisciplinary major. I ended up getting a master's degree in women's studies because I wanted to continue that interdisciplinary um, uh, element. And I think that kind of led to my career, which is when I started job hunting after grad school, I, I like to do a lot of different stuff. And I really struggled to sort of say, well, should I go into marketing or human resources or what have you? I didn't want to pick And so luckily it was the dot-com era where everybody was just getting hired to do anything. And I ended up getting a job at a magazine called Working Woman, uh, which had launched a website at the time. And I thought, oh, perfect. I can look at what other women did in their careers and kind of learn from that. And I had one of those ridiculous titles like director of special projects, which sort of meant we pull you in wherever we want. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, I I joke, Dustin, but I think I would still be there. I loved that job. I love the mission. I love the interdisciplinary nature of it. And it went bankrupt uh, right before 9-11 and I was living in New York City. And that kind of threw me for a loop because I thought I had found it, right? I thought it was perfect. And I started freelance writing and still doing the Rotary Club speeches. And uh, by luck, my aunt is a literary agent. And she said, you know, you're a good writer. I could get you a lot of work, ghostwriting books and, you know, editing stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll freelance until I find a real job. And here we are 22 years later, and I accidentally <laughs> forgot to find a real job. Yeah. <laughs> and my first book started as a blog, you know, as you did if you were a Gen Xer, which was about kind of my career journey. And that yeah. became 
my first book, Getting from College to Career, which was published in 2007 and, and everything kind of launched from there. But I, I'm going to be honest, I think for the first 10 years of my business, I thought I was actually looking for a job and just doing this until that happened. That's amazing. And that's actually inspiring. I know it seems kind of funny probably to hear someone tell you that this many years later, but um, you know, I think when people really try to find, you know, follow their heart and their skill set, you know, and their passions and skill set, I feel like if you're working anywhere that does that, I feel like the sky's the limit for you. Um, I'm curious from you, you know, your first book you just hit on, you know, getting from college to career, your essential guide to succeeding in the real world. What uh, you know, that was written probably, what, 15 years ago? Is that right-ish? Yeah, 2007. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what advice do you have from that book then that you think is still very relevant today? It's actually amazing how much still is. We did a, a second edition in 2012. And uh, I tell you, the biggest difference was social media. Um, that in 2007, you know, it was very, very early days. So there was nothing on LinkedIn um, you know, or, or Facebook or anything uh, related to that. And there was very little on even texting and, and cell phones, right? I mean, at that point, you know, I think I still talked about voicemail, which is, has basically become irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, the fundamentals are exactly the same. And I talk about this a lot with the sort of hybrid move since COVID, which is building your connections, you know, being gracious and respectful, following directions, um, you know, building your network and keeping in touch with people, keeping them in the loop, doing your research on employers and industries, following up. There's so much that is exactly the same. The tools are a little bit different, but, you know, writing a thank you note, whether you're doing it, you know, with a pen and paper or whether you're doing it on email, it's the same concept. It's just a different tool set. So it's actually kind of remarkable how much is still the same. That's awesome. Yeah. You think, you know, uh, when you, you talked a little bit, even in your book now about networking, I wonder if that's a common theme. I haven't, I haven't seen your, your middle two books yet. Uh, the networking, uh, just the word when I talk to college kids, cause I'm the same way as you, I'm like, just go make friends. It's like buddy, the elf, like go find friends, make <laughs> friends, follow up, care about people. Don't try to use people. What, what do you think holds young people back from networking? Like, I, I feel like one, it seems very nebulous. So like, what, what do you think holds them back? And two, what are the, the keys to helping them break their paradigm of networking? Even way back up? at Working Woman, that word was always taboo. People think the word networking is schmoozy or cheesy yep. or that you're being fake. So I actually give programs on networking now and I've changed the title to The Power of Professional Relationships because it's just about, like you said, making and keeping friends. Yep. So I think there are a couple of things that hold people back. Number one is the idea that it's fake and that you're using people and that you're taking and sort of not being authentic, which I think in real good networking couldn't be farther from the truth. So I think it's a fear of being inauthentic. But the second is, particularly for students who are uh, first-generation college students, uh, for those who maybe have parents who weren't professionals, for those from underrepresented groups, there's a feeling that professional networking means you have to know important people right? That you have to know the CEO of a company, that you have to know people who work for the Fortune 500 or for Google. And that's not true. And I have so many examples. You know, I worked with a student, first-gen college student, um, a Hispanic young man, and he didn't know anybody. You know, he was very recent to to this country. And he did his homework. He was at a a college in New York City. And he said, you know, I did my homework on this speaker who was coming to campus. And before he gave the talk, I walked up, I introduced myself. I told him I had done a lot of research. I told him how much I admired him. And the guy hands him his card and says, I really like your style. You know, you should apply for an internship because he did his homework, because he had a little bit of guts. He went up and did that. He didn't know anybody important. That's networking, right? It's sort of being who you are and following your authentic interests. And it does take a little bit of confidence to walk up to somebody and and introduce yourself or ask somebody for a referral. But I couldn't agree more. If you know how to make a friend, you can network and, and do it in a really authentic way. Yeah. And you said something in earlier, said the key was uh, you were given a list of things that would make you successful as you're navigating that world. Follow up is so critical. And so what's your advice when it comes to helping young people, uh, whether it's like create the discipline of follow up or understand the importance of follow up? So I have a little trick for a follow up, which is in the moment when you are having a conversation with somebody, when you're at the career fair, when you are at the alumni networking event, whenever you're in that moment, Ask the person to give you what I call an assignment. You're not going to call it that, but hey, is there a book you recommend? Is there a podcast that you like? You know, anything you, a company you recommend I look into, trick them into giving you an assignment so that you have something to follow up about. 
I totally agree that saying, hey, Dustin, just writing to follow up is super awkward and uncomfortable and probably not going to get a good result. But if I say, Dustin, you recommended that I listen to that podcast and I did. And thank you so much. It was so helpful. Here's something I heard. Now we're in dialogue. So I think it really starts in the moment with figuring out a way to give yourself a reason. Then you jot down that reason, you put it on your calendar and you do it and you follow up exactly as you said you did. So I think you do have to be a little strategic and forward thinking, but once you have that trick in your toolkit, you can basically use that forever. I still do that. Yeah, that, that discipline, I think, is a game changer for no matter what you do, right? For any, It's a habit. You know, it's learning right. a habit that you can then use for the rest of your life. That's great. So your second book uh, was Becoming the, Becoming the Boss, New Rules for the Next Generation of Leaders. Uh, what, what was the focus of that and why, why were you inspired to make that your t- next topic? Well, first of all, I want to say that was not my actual second book. I wrote multiple proposals after getting from college to career was successful and they all got rejected. I had this really brilliant idea for how to get your second job, which like nobody cared. Nobody (laughs) wanted that book. It got completely rejected. Like that's the dumbest idea ever. I just want to say that it was not like a straight shot from book one to book two. Your sophomore effort is really hard. Um, But I ended up essentially, and this kind of guided me from the second book and beyond is I sort of realized that the, the magic of the first book was I was completely trying to write the book I wish I had. Like I was absolutely genuinely wanting to know everything that I would have wanted when I was graduating from college and and kind of still did want to know. So with the second book, I was just starting to manage people. And I thought, I have literally no idea what I'm doing. What should I do? And so I wrote the book I wish I had. And I've kind of used that as my guide to say, if I'm wondering these things and I can't find it, and I've actually read with product design, a lot of the best products were invented because somebody couldn't find what they needed. And they said, well, if nobody else created it, you know, I'm going to invent it. So I think there's like an element of curiosity uh, that I followed with that book. And it was funny. I was really hesitant to use the word boss because I thought that had a lot of weird connotations and I focus grouped it. And a lot of people say, I love that you did it because I wanted to be a boss, but nobody was using that word. And so I bought your book because you used that word. So I think that the language is really funny. That's awesome. I'm glad you didn't shy away from it. So when you think about you know, the two or three takeaways that have been most impactful now that it's been several years and you've talked to probably thousands and thousands, maybe even more people about this topic, what have been the most impactful lessons that you've seen on your audiences or people who have read the book? So one of the moments writing Becoming the Boss that was really, it was funny, getting from college career kind of wrote itself. Like it was very easy to think of the stages of resume, cover letter, you know, there's right. a very natural progression and that was a lot harder with becoming the boss. So I I kind of broke it up into sections. And one was about communicating, right, as a new manager. And I think the magic happened, and I always interview people because that's how I, you know, kind of get the ideas. And the magic happened when the best managers I talked to, when I asked about communication, talked more about listening than about talking. And that to be a really good manager of people, you kind of want to listen more than you talk. And even if you don't do what your employees ask, or even if you make a decision that ultimately overrules them, if people feel listened to, they feel like they have a good relationship with you and they're more willing to follow. So a big idea of the book was that um, a lot of people now more than ever before manage somebody older than they are. And that a lot of that has to do with changes in technology. And there was a real discomfort, you know, managing someone with more life and work experience. And the answer that the older employees said was, I just want someone who's going to listen to me. I don't want to feel ignored. So I think that was my absolute number one takeaway from that book was the importance of listening as a manager or really in any field. That's awesome. Well, I see. So it's your point. You, you said uh, it kind of leads into your next book, which was the remix, how, how to lead and succeed in the multi-generational workforce like that. I assume that kind of bled into each other, maybe through the experience. And so what same question, like what were the big takeaways there that you think have really helped uh, the leaders that you've been coaching or inspiring the last several years? I will take credit for being a better listener after writing Becoming the Boss. And, you know, it's really funny how life works. I, after getting from college to career, I was super happy being a college campus speaker. I was just going to ride that book. I love college campuses. I was an RA and a tour guide in college. I mean, like, were you? I could tell. I could totally tell you were an RA, right? So 
I probably should have gone into like student affairs or something. I just sort of didn't know that was a I wanted to do right. I should have. I should have. We should have known. Um, but I liked hanging out on college campuses. I liked being with students, and I would travel all around. And that was the gig. And that's a great career to be a college campus speaker. The problem is the travel. And you know, by that time, I was a mom, and it was just kind of getting to me to, to travel because all colleges seem to be in like rural Nebraska and really hard to get to. So I was sort of thinking about my next move. And and one of the things that I did that I think was lucky, and I do think luck plays a factor sometimes, is I had positioned myself as an early career expert. And all my branding and my website is an early career expert. Well, I was smart enough around 2008, 2009 to realize that this word millennial was sort of exploding on the scene. And I called my website designer and I said, can you just change all of my branding, my logo to say millennial? career expert. And I kid you not, it was like the phone rang <laughs> the minute I did that. Wow. And corporates started calling me, thanks to Google, uh, who found me that way and said, hey, we're trying to hire millennials and we're really struggling. Can you help us do that? And like any good entrepreneur, I said, oh yeah, I totally do that. You know, well, I'm literally like writing a presentation as we speak. And what I realized was I did really know what students were telling me they wanted, what questions they were asking. And I will always give them credit. PricewaterhouseCoopers was my first client. Wow. And they hired me to go on recruiting trips with them. I became a spokesperson for LinkedIn uh, for their campus uh, efforts. And it was really that word millennial. And again, I kind of rode that. I pitched a couple of books on managing and hiring millennials that didn't get sold. <laughs> but I was listening to my clients and listening to the questions they asked. And you know, several years later... A lot of people said, well, it's really great that you're helping us understand millennials, but like, what about everybody else? I'm a Gen Xer. There's still a lot of baby boomers in the workplace. And I kept getting that question. And again, by listening and saying, I don't know, I started to deep dive and this very much kind of played in my American studies background of sort of the cultural history of each generation and what had changed in the workforce over time. And that became uh, what you mentioned, my third book, uh, The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace, which said, um, you know, millennials are very important. They're the largest group in the workplace, but they're not the only ones. And that pivot, I think, was really powerful for me personally, because I'm not a millennial. And I always felt a little inauthentic saying, well, you know, I'm kind of a big sister to millennials. I can understand them. But it kind of brought my own personal experience more to the conversation. I think that's when everything clicked. Yeah, I I One of the questions I have, and this is intentionally an oversimplification, but you talked about the power of listening to people, right? And, you know, I'm probably in that middle zone where I've got all three like you, like I've got, you know, folks 10, 20 years older than me, 10, 20 years younger than me that are all working around me. And it's definitely different. But to your point, I feel like if you listen well and you care about folks, and you really are trying to like, listen, we talk about head and heart, right? So you like really feel what's happening it can guide you. However, when you're creating policies, I don't know where the heck you go to like create policies to that, that speak to multi-generational uh, audiences. What's your advice as you're trying to lead and create like sustainable change in an organization? So I want to relate this completely to our moment. I think this is what everybody is thinking about when it comes to the return to office conversation. And do we do hybrid? How many days a week? You know, how do we figure that out? I think it's a multi-generational question. Mm. And so just to use that as an example, my opinion is we focus way too much on trying to find one solution, right? So like a one-size-fits-all approach. And the reality is in a diverse, multi-generational, global workplace, there is rarely a solution. So I'll give you one example, which is employee benefits. I get asked all the time, how do we create or pick the one employee benefit that employees from 21 to 75 are going to want? And my answer is, that's impossible. There isn't one, right? You create choices. So to give you an example, and PricewaterhouseCoopers is the example, I, this is not, I can't take credit for it, but I really admire it. You know, the gold standard benefit is a 401k match, right? We all kind of agree that that is a gold standard benefit. And when they actually listened to their employees and looked at the data, what they found is their Gen Z and younger millennial employees were not taking the match for their 401k. And my assumption is you sit there if you're not listening and say, well, that's because they're lazy, entitled narcissists. That's because these young people don't care about their financial future. You make assumptions, right? But instead, they listened. They asked the young employees, why are you not taking our match? And I'm sure you know the answer, as many of the listeners do. They said, 
uh, we'd love to put money towards our retirement, but we're still paying off our student loans. Yep. And so PwC became one of the first companies that said, you now have a choice. What we care about, the strategy, the goal, to your point, is we care about your personal finances and your financial freedom and your financial comfort. We will give you a choice. We will either match your retirement contribution or we will match your student loan repayment. And by the way, wow. it wasn't just 20-somethings who took it. Who else was it? The parents and grandparents yeah. <laughs> of 20-somethings who wanted to help the next generation. So. I think the answer to any conundrum, even return to office, is I don't think there's a single return to office policy that's perfect for everybody. I think you need a couple of choices that people are allowed to decide on that you get from listening to what they want. Not unlimited choices, but more than one choice, if that makes sense. Did you ever read the book? It was probably, I don't know. 12, 15 years ago. It's called Nudge. And it was talking about, it's like an economics book, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, making decisions. But the point is, is, you know, you're not unlimited choices. Unlimited choices drives the same kind of an action. But if you narrow it down to two or three choices, you get really good, you know, answers or responses. Um, so you're exactly. similar, similar mentality is what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, and I think that we all want sort of one beautiful, perfect answer. Even in the, I was working with a nonprofit and they were trying to attract older donors and really kind of build up their younger donor base. And they were going to have a big gala. Right. And they were going to do like a sit down black tie dinner. And a lot of the young people said, like, I don't really want to go to a sit down black tie dinner. So they created a cocktail party before the sit down dinner. And they said, look, a lot of older people came to the cocktail party. Some younger people stayed for the dinner. But you had a choice. It wasn't unlimited choice, but it was choice. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're here today, as we talked earlier, to talk about your your latest book, which I have spent quite a bit of time with, and it's called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career uh, Through the Changing World of Work. And I believe you wrote it during COVID. Is that right? During like the height of COVID. Is that correct? Or right before that? That is exactly correct. Okay. So I'm, I'm fascinated. Like what inspired this version of the book or this, this book for, from your heart? Because you, you said you've written books I know about and now ones I don't know about. So I'm curious, what was the inspiration for this one? I did not mean to write this book. I did not want to write this book. I was happily promoting the remix, which had come out in 2019. (laughs) This was the beginning of 2020. I was on the road. I had a fully booked speaking and media calendar. I was all remix all the time. And then in a two-week period in March 2020, I lost every single paid speech I had on my calendar. My calendar went to zero. Mm. And I had not anticipated that that could be possible. I had not planned for it. I was absolutely in shock. And I don't mean zero like metaphorical zero. I mean like literal zero. And I didn't know what to do. And I decided that the only choice I had was to kind of rely on what I knew, which was to reach out to people, right? And that's where I think the networking piece becomes a lot more human, which is I started calling people up and having conversations and basically saying to other speakers and other authors and corporates, what are you doing? How are you handling this? Like, what's going on? And because I'm me, I took notes <laughs> because that's what I do. Yeah. And um, I started talking to uh, my literary agent and I will give her all the credit. She said, maybe there's a book in this, in what people are doing. And if not a book, we were talking about maybe doing an ebook or a podcast series or somehow turning it into content with the idea that I couldn't be the only one struggling with this. And the kind of magical moment was I live in New York City. I was looking out my window at cars on the street, literally staring in space. And I just had this flash of feeling like it's that moment where you're driving your car and you hit a traffic or make a wrong turn and your GPS says recalculating, you can't go the way you're going to go. And I thought that's, that's the book is the idea that I was just driving along doing my thing. I had no intention of doing anything other than what was the plan. And that just wasn't possible anymore. And that really resonated with people. And what's really funny uh, is I started the book in, I think, May of 2020. And I wrote that entire book, Dustin, as a post-pandemic book. Um, And about six months in, I said, "Uh, (laughs) this is no longer a post-pandemic book. The book came out in February 2021, and we were still very much in the middle of the pandemic. So I had to really pivot halfway through the writing and say, we're still going to be in this and really give people a book. What What I did was I kind of pivoted it to talk about the pandemic, but really more to say, we're always recalculating. There's always uncertainty. You never know what's coming around the corner. 
But that book drove me to figure out how to never put all my eggs in one basket again and have Mm. a lot more diversified business because with a fully in-person speaking business, if I had decided to stick with that, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I would be bankrupt because it just wasn't possible. I had to pivot. So that was recalculating. I call it my accidental fourth book. (laughs) Well, So I I assume I'm, you know, obviously our organization, uh, we have a number of authors and we go through book launches and all that. So I assume um, you're probably open for business again in terms of going on your tours and speaking engagements for this book. Is that correct? It is, but I'll tell you, and here's where the networking piece comes in and why I think it's really important to point out, I am not an overnight success. I have been doing this since 2002. And the other thing I did when the pandemic hit, and I I was sort of embarrassed to talk about it, but I've become much more vocal, is I called my best clients and I said, I've lost all of my business. Is there anything I can do for you? I basically asked for business. And a lot of them said, do you have any advice for us on working remotely, on managing people remotely? And I very quickly put together a webinar and we were able, of course, to do Zoom. But I went to people and because I had those relationships, they said, we trust you to build something new. You know, we will pay you to do it. And that kept me going until that book came out. So I, I feel very fortunate that I had those relationships. And I think it proves that when people really know you, they will trust you to do things that they probably wouldn't go to the open market for. So I think those deep relationships really paid off. And I have a lot of gratitude for really favors that people did for me during that time. That's awesome. So as you've been talking to folks, you know, it's this book's been out, you know, for about a year yeah. now. Yeah. Right. So um, what same question I've asked for the other ones, what have been the, the biggest takeaways that you've noticed or the most common takeaways from the different audiences you've worked with? The biggest takeaway for me is I was always, somebody said you're relentlessly focused on action has always been my thing. Like I want to give you a toolbox of ideas. I want to give you tactics. And so often when I was giving webinars during really the height of COVID, even before vaccines and everything, people kept saying to me, I know the things I'm supposed to do, but I I just can't motivate to do them. I just don't want to do it. I don't want to move forward. So it was this sort of mindset, mental health piece. And I realized in all of my previous books, I had been so relentlessly focused on outcomes and tactics and actions. I had never really written about mindset. And so the very first chapter of recalculating is mindset and basically saying, you can know all the best things to do, but if you're not in the headspace to do it. So for instance, I suffer from anxiety. I've had anxiety and perfectionism and panic attacks my whole life. I've you know, gotten very good at managing it, but I had never talked about that publicly before. I didn't think people would want to hear that. I thought it would hurt my credibility. So I wrote about it for the first time. And probably the, the pivotal moment for that chapter and the launch, the start of recalculating, I ended up writing the mindset chapter last, although it became first in the book, is I interviewed two people back to back and it was just a fluke. And they were both in the same uh, situation, which is they'd been out of work for a relatively long time, six months or more. Yep. And one of them said, I'm never going to get a job. I mean, I have a six month gap in my resume. Nobody's going to hire me. And the next person had a six month gap and said, I am raring to go. People can't work going to be able to wait to hire me. I've had a break. I'm rested. I'm relaxed. And it was like, oh, the fact of your situation is the same, but your approach is so different. Right. That's really notable to me. And that was such an aha moment of how much mindset plays a part in this whole process. Yeah, that's what I was going to, I, I highlighted in here of like that, that to me at a takeaway. So I, I actually want to, I mean, I'm sure that you get this compliment all the time. I really appreciate your uh, desire for action and clear, like here are things you can do, right? Like that, because so many times when you read books, it's like, well, that seems very nebulous and that's cool, but like, how can I start now? Um, but I think we're probably pretty similar. We're like type A, we just want to get it going. However, you know, I've, I've struggled with anxiety. I've struggled with all sorts of, you know, mental or physical illnesses. And that when you're at your worst, even if we have a desire to act, we can't. And so I appreciated so much that you started there. And I'm just curious, you know, as you talk to folks, what are the key mindsets that you're encouraging for? Or how are you helping people break out of mindset, like the, the cycles that they're in right now? Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I know it's, uh, we're speaking in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. So I think there's just so much less stigma than there used to be, you know, when I was a kid. So I, I really appreciate that you'll talk about it. So a couple of thoughts. Um, one is 
a very, 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 very small action is still an action. It's still a step forward. And I think too often I felt like if I didn't hit a home run or have a huge conversation or apply for a job that I shouldn't do anything. And I think this idea that the little steps add up is really powerful. So when I think of when I've had my worst moments, like when, when working woman went bankrupt, I sort of went into paralysis and did nothing because I couldn't do something big. And so I think the idea that texting one friend is a step, uh, editing one word on your LinkedIn profile is a step. So what is the absolute smallest thing you can do to move forward is really powerful. And I think the second thing, which I've gotten much better at, is ask for help. There are so many people who can help you. And instead, we sort of hibernate and again, get paralyzed. And you can go to your university career center, whether you graduated 25 years ago or yesterday. You can ask your friends for help. Um, there was a group I interviewed for the book who um, they all got laid off from the same company and they started a text chain to support each other. And they just kind of created their own community. So I think it's really that idea that you're not alone and any step forward matters. And obviously seek professional help if you need it. But sometimes those tiny baby steps get you out of the darkest places, but we're so afraid to take them. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to most people who become leaders, whatever organization that they're in, uh, you just said two things that really resonate with me when I've been stuck is uh, you go from, you know, like you said, bankrupt to like, I've got to do something big now. I got to get back on my feet. And you don't think about the journey of all the steps that got you to the first place, you know, when you were successful. And so that's, that's hard. Right. And then the second thing is, is uh, it requires a lot of confidence in self to ask other people for help. What's ironic is you think about, you know, if anybody asks me for help, I don't spend a second. I actually feel honored. I'm like, thank you for asking. I would love to help you. But when I, when I need to ask somebody for help, I'm assuming like, God, I'm going to put them out or I'm going to, you know, it's not going to be good. I don't know. How do we break that mindset? Cause that's, that's crippling. I think it's the shame piece. I mean, when, when working women out of business, I was so embarrassed Yep. To not have a job. I was embarrassed in March of 2020 that I hadn't been smart enough to have a diversified business. I was ashamed. Yep. And what I found was, and actually, this is a lesson for my first book. I'm going to share this story. So it's sort of the perfectionist tendency again. The shame is actually sort of the, the key to getting out of it. So when I wrote Getting from College to Career, I wrote the whole book and I handed it into my editor. And my editor said, Have you ever made a mistake? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course. And he said, your book, you, you're just, you're so perfect. Every decision you made was right. Every I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, you're perfect in this book. And I said, but I've made a million mistakes. I didn't think anybody would want to read them. They just want to read about the good things and like the yeah. things I did that worked. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, they want to read about how you messed up and fixed it. They want to read about the mistakes uh. you made so they can avoid them. So I wrote a section in about how when I came home from graduate school and I didn't know what I wanted to do, I was living in my parents' home. I was very fortunate that they supported me. And I was lying under the covers eating uh, frozen yogurt with rainbow sprinkles, which is true. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want to leave the room. And it was sort of this bad period. I cannot say, I write this whole book, as you said, relentlessly action-oriented. And like nine times out of 10, people say, I read your book. I love the part about being under the covers with rainbow sprinkles because I so related to that. <laughs> And that made me realize you're a real person and I could do the other things. I always thought as an expert, as a speaker, all you wanted to hear was that I knew what I was doing. Yep. And every time, I've really tried to do this on LinkedIn. Every time I say I messed up, I wore uncomfortable shoes and I had nine blisters and I made a mistake and said something stupid in my speech. The more I did that, the more people liked it and trusted me. Mm -hmm. And so when I reached out, you know, when I wrote the book, I had finally learned that lesson in my mid forties now where I reached out to people and said, guys, I have no business. I don't know what to do. And they're like, I'm so glad you said that. Cause I don't either. Let's do something together. So yeah. the key out of the shame and the embarrassment and the failure is to tell people about it. And it's like this weird elixir that it helps you more to be imperfect than to be perfect. Does that resonate with you? It's like been the Absolutely. surprise of my life. Absolutely. That I wasn't supposed to be perfect. But to your point though, like I, I feel like if I talk about me and my brother, like I I was always the type A like overachiever. And so there's some good things that come with that, but there's a lot of crippling things that have come with that. As you get older, you start realizing it. And so yeah, that resonates very, very close to home for me. Uh, another thing that you talked about, uh, and I, I'll ask this broadly so you can decide where you want to go with it, but I, I appreciated you kind of diving into the emotions at each stage of your career or that, that can be there. So will you just tell uh, our audience a little bit about that? About the emotions? So, oh God, there's so many emotions. 
Right. But I, I just was thinking like how you can have, um, like I, I'll say how it landed with me. Right. Okay. So, you know, I think about at different points, you know, I've had started off as a teacher in inner city St. Louis, and now I get this really cool opportunity 20 some odd years later to do this here. Uh, it, you know, but along that journey, when I think about God, you know, different emotions, like there's been times where I'm like, this is the greatest day ever. I will never leave. And then pretty quickly, I'm like, I've got to go. I am burned out and everything in between. And I was just thinking like, it just feels to have someone talk and like make me make it okay that I've got these ups and downs and I can like stop and sit and think of like, where am I at right now? And what does that mean for my next steps? How do you help people process uh, where they are in their journey. Because right now what we're dealing with, at least in education, and I have to assume anywhere else is there's a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. I, I travel the country and talk to superintendents all the time. Uh, so on the K-12 side, and all I hear are, we're really worried that teachers are going to quit and leave. We're worried our principals are going to quit and leave. Superintendents are retiring at a crazy rate. Um, and so there's just all these emotions. And I don't know if it's always burnout, which is why when I try to ask a big, broad question, I apologize of like the emotional, like emotions that you go through, like it may not just be burnout. I'm trying to figure out how to help people process where they are and figure out how to get out of those mindsets or challenges. I mean, I just want to say, cause I just really feel like no one's saying it. We are emerging from a war. This has been two and a half years of terror, fear, death. I, I mean, it's, absolutely terrifying what we have all been through. And to pretend it didn't happen, I think is insane. And so of course people are burnt out. Of course people are struggling with their mental health. I was, you know, to your point, I was at a college recently in Colorado and they said the high school guidance counselors have been calling the college administrators to say, you got to know what's coming. These kids are traumatized. And they're mm. going to need a lot of support. And my, my daughter's going to, to sleepaway camp this summer. And they were saying, we have mental health support at camp because these kids need people to talk to in the workplace. You know, I saw they had mental health week on Wall Street. You could have knocked me over with a feather 20 years ago. I mean, you would never even admit that people on Wall Street had mental health. I mean, that was no. just unheard of. <laughs> no. So I think we have to acknowledge that we have all been through something and every single person's experience has been different. So I think one of the, the pieces of advice, if I can, is number one, seek professional help if you need it. Yep. Every boss or manager or principal or superintendent does not have to be a therapist, but you better have at your fingertips where to refer people to um, if they need it. And I think we need to really be open about it. And I do think the burden is somewhat on leaders, as it often is, to ask the question, do you need support? If you do, here are the resources. Again, you don't have to be the therapist, but you have to be the one who says, hey, if anyone needs help, we understand this is a difficult time. If you need help, it's okay. And I'll, I'll give you one example that I recently heard. And I don't know why it meant so much to me, but you know, there are days where I just really should not have gone to school. I was too anxious. Nope. I was too, it just, I should have not gone. And of course I did because those were the days. <laughs> and we used to joke about taking a mental health day, right? Which basically meant you were not really sick, but you were playing hooky. I was speaking to a friend whose son goes to a very intense um, private school in New York City. And she said, the administration came out and said, a mental health day is a completely legitimate excuse for not coming to school, if that's really what it is. And that's an excused absence. And to me, what a moment to say, if you need a day for your mental health, take it. It's not a joke. It's not like you're going to go to the spa and get a massage. It's actually because you're burning out. Yep. I think that's really powerful. And I hope that message resonates. Does that, that's it. For some reason, that just seems astonishing to me that that's okay now in a way that it used to be a joke. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, on the K-12 side, what's been tough is that, you know, just like you experienced, you know, growing up in school, I'm sure you said your dad was an English teacher, right? So, mm -hmm. Uh, you just show up. You show up yeah. no matter what. And that gets taxing over a long period of time. And so to have a world or an organization, like if I'm in charge of a district or a school, to figure out how do I create a safety net for my leaders to be able to tell me they're struggling and know that they'll get the support they need, whether it's professional or like a mental health support day. And there's so many people who you know work on hourly wages and just don't have that privilege. But you know, we've always been a country that doesn't prioritize vacation and time off. And I think it's really becoming imperative to see how necessary that is. I feel very fortunate running my own business. I'll tell you, there are days where at two o'clock, I turn everything off and I go watch Netflix just because I need 
the yep. break. And I'm really fortunate to do that. And I think more people need to kind of figure out what fills their bucket or, or however you talk about it and, and what they need to really take a break and figure it out for themselves. But I'm really worried about college students, you know, who are so busy and so stressed. And I'm worried about all of us. We've been very isolated. And I think working too hard, it's not just about productivity. You're not going to be productive if you're burned out. So I think this is a national issue. And uh, I hope things like paid time off for mental health become a lot more common. So I heard you say, and this may this may be related, but I heard you say in an interview that I listened to uh, getting ready for this, that you had, <laughs> you had given up Instagram and Facebook. Uh, is that correct? Okay, get ready because I'm a bit of an evangelist for this. That is correct. Wow. Um, I, I'm not, the, my, my uh, Lauren here will tell you I'm not the best at Facebook or Instagram. My wife would also give me uh, a tough time about it. But can you tell me, so two things I have a question for. One, why? Give me a little bit more of the story. Uh, and then two, you did talk about in this interview something that I thought was really interesting about active versus passive social yes. media scrolling. And I thought that was really helpful. And so I just curious the why and then tell us what that is. Okay. So I'll start with active versus passive. And this was in my research for recalculating. Active social media scrolling is, huh, I think I'm looking for a new job. I'm going to scroll through LinkedIn and look at people who went to my college, who had my major and see what they're doing. Active social media scrolling is, I want to redo my bedroom. I'm going to go on Instagram and look for accounts that do bedroom design. You're looking for something specific, yep. which means your brain will filter out the other things and focus you on what you want. That's perfectly healthy and appropriate. Passive social media scrolling, which is what the majority of us do the majority of the time, is doom scrolling is I'm just going to scroll and see where it takes me, yep. which means I'm going to go down the rabbit hole that Dustin had a better vacation than I did. And clearly he's more <laughs> successful than I am and he's happier than I am and I'm terrible and my life sucks. So that's the difference between active and passive. <laughs> my personal experience is I, like many people, would go down the rabbit hole of comparison on Facebook and Instagram. For some reason, LinkedIn doesn't trigger me in the same way. So I am extremely active on LinkedIn and Twitter. I go on once in a while. But I was finding that every time I went on Facebook and Instagram, I felt worse. I felt bad. I was comparing myself. And so I kind of like muted. They, I tried all these ways to like not totally give it up. Yeah. And then I tried it and it was the best thing I ever did. But I want to tell you a really quick anecdote about what made me finally pull the trigger on getting rid of it. And I mean, I'm gone. It's deleted. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I went, I went cold turkey. I, I <laughs> muted for a while. I did all the things short of that. And I did it and I've never looked back. So my 25th college reunion is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. And I went to a pretty prestigious school. And I was in the group of my classmates on Facebook. Yep. And this one invented a font. And that one's a congresswoman. And this one is CEO of this. And this one has been at Goldman Sachs as a partner for 25 years. And this one just won a Supreme Court case. And, and I'm on it like, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm such a loser. Everybody's so successful. Everybody looks good. Their marriages are happier than mine. They dress better than I do. Their hair isn't going great. I mean, I was literally like... How bad can I possibly feel? So then I go to a football game at my college and I go to the tailgate for my class yes. and I run into some of the self-same people on Facebook. And guess what? One of them had a really sulky teenager who was being a real pain in the butt and the parent was complaining about it. The other said, oh my gosh, I'm getting divorced. The other said, I hate my job. I wish I had my own. And they were real people yep. with some success and some problems. And I was yep. like, oh, which is real here? what they're showing on Facebook that makes me feel bad or the actual human being who has highs and lows just like I do. And it was such a stark contrast of reality versus social media. And I just decided I was done. And I have to tell you, it's really funny. You know, you hear people being like sober curious. There are a lot of people who are like quitting Instagram curious. They're like, Lindsay, I heard from a friend of a friend that you quit Instagram. <laughs> it was like a secret club. Yeah. And I've told people the amount of space I have cleared up in my brain. And also like if you and I met in person and we were having coffee, there used to be a part of my brain was like, we should take a selfie. We should take a selfie. I should put yeah. a selfie. What should I hashtag? And I wonder what Dustin's thought. I don't have that anymore. I'm yep. just present in that moment. So if anyone is quitting curious, I, I highly recommend it. And it was a hundred percent for my mental health. That's why I did it. Fascinating. So two other quick questions before we get to our last, like rapid fire segment because I did promise to get you out of here on time. This is a problem. I like you too much. So we're going to hang out way too long. Um, <laughs> you can do a part hey. two. Cool. So uh, right now, you know, these are quick segments of, for you. Uh, 
you you had a you had a, a point where you talked about great questions to ask an interviewer. I'm in the middle of interviewing folks. This is more selfish, like, and I always get thrown off when people that I'm interviewing don't have good questions. So really, like that that is a pet peeve of mine. And so I'm just curious, what advice you have or you give for folks to ask, you know, the interviewer the questions. So this is your golden opportunity to show that you've done your homework. So right. don't ask a generic question like, "What's a typical day like for you, Dustin?" Go on Dustin's LinkedIn. Go on the LinkedIn of Franklin Covey, find something that interests you and ask about that. So, hey, here's your little secret. Hey, Dustin, I was reading Franklin Covey's recent blog post. I was listening to your recent podcast interview. Wanted to ask you a question about that. So find something in their social media feed. This is where social media is active. Find something in their blog or social media feed and ask about that. Yeah, I would say uh, I hired the last person who did something like that. And I, I'm i not the person that like wants the ego stroke. That makes me a little bit nervous. So I'm like, eh, what are we doing here? But to your point, it showed a level of depth that I really appreciated. And if like, regardless of your outcomes, if you do that as a normal habit, that's that can be a game changer in of itself. Love so it. That's awesome. The other one that I appreciate is right now, you know, schools are ending and they're making plans to come back. You had talked about the importance of uh, onboarding, you know, you think onboarding new folks is a critical missed opportunity. And I think every organization probably thinks they do it, but I'm curious to get your take on the power of onboarding and what advice you have for folks. Well, every statistic shows that that first day of work has a ridiculous impact on someone's happiness and retention at an organization. So make it a big deal. I interviewed this guy who was a, the head of a, a employee benefits company in Dayton, Ohio, yep. and he had like some ridiculous retention rate of like 98%. I said, what? what is that about? And he said, um, the first thing I do every morning when I'm not traveling, he said, is I see if there are any new employees starting that day and I greet them at the front door and walk them to their desk. He's the CEO. Mm. I said, how long does that take you? And he said, five minutes. That five minutes says to that employee, the CEO of the company cares that you have decided to work here and spend his time doing that. It doesn't take time. It just takes the effort to do that. And by the way, when I uh, research people of exit interviews and why people leave, the number one reason is nobody here knew my name, wow. right? Nobody paid attention to me. So what can you do on the first day that says, hey, we're happy you're here. Welcome. Make sure that they feel like they belong from that first day. And I think that really sets things up. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. That's awesome. All right. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Ready for these. Uh, what's a habit or discipline that you use on a daily or it could be weekly basis, but I'm curious about daily habits um, that help you be the best version of yourself, right? So uh, I, we just talked about, I, I feel so safe. The fact that you have talked about all your, your struggles and everything, you know, to manage my anxiety, I have to start with, uh, I call it priming, like meditation, visualization. And that has helped me like light years. My kids think I'm crazy, but it, it has helped me. I'm curious what you do given, you know, your travel, your work ethic, all the things that you are. I love that. I have to say I've tried meditation. I do it every day. It does not magically change my life, although I'm sticking with my little app. So I would love to get your, your mentoring on that. <laughs> Number two, I hate exercising, but I love talking. So I go for a morning walk or jog either with a friend or doing a walk talk with a friend. And that is the only way that I can trick myself into exercising. So that's yeah. a habit. And my third, and I've written about this, is I no longer have a to-do list. I calendar everything. So turn your to-do list into a calendar. So if you say, Lindsay, I need a 500-word essay from you, I don't write it down. I put on my calendar, here's the hour of time I'm going to dedicate to doing that activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you'd written that. My wife had gone to some training recently. She's a chief of staff of her school district. And uh, that has been, I think, a life changer for her as well. Game changer. Game changer. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, what book or books have really influenced either your life or that you've read recently that you think people need to check out? The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron is a classic book of creativity. And it was not until I read that book. I kid you not. I already had a published book. I still didn't call myself a writer until I read that book that said the only thing you have to do to be called a writer is to write. And it was so powerful for me that I could name myself that. So Julia Cameron, The Artist's Way. The second is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, uh, which led me to having a virtual assistant. He was very early on that trend, and that changed my business that I no longer had to do anything, um, but really thinking about the processes of my business and that I didn't have to do everything myself. So The Artist's Way and The 4-Hour Workweek. That's awesome. Uh so when you're, you're, you live in New York city, right? Huh? That's my wife lives. If she hears that, she'll be like, let's move today. Come on uh, over. Yeah. We'll take it. We need people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, 
when you're walking around, if you've got, if you're not talking to somebody, which I assume you probably <laughs> are a lot, uh, given how you work out, what's on your playlist? What's on my playlist? Uh, okay, so here's how New Yorky I am. It's all Broadway show tunes all the time, <laughs> my friend. I was interviewing in New York. Sometimes you have to get interviewed by a co-op board before you can move into a building. And when I was in my 20s, they were like, what kind of music do you listen to? They were all older. And I think they were worried I was going to be loud. And I was like, show tunes? And they were like, yeah, she's in. <laughs> were you, Were you when you were in high school or college, did you do uh, singing or performance at all? So here's my little secret, the highlight of my life. My sophomore year, I was Guinevere in Camelot. Never got better than that. But I'll tell you, I wasn't that good. I was good enough for my <laughs> mediocre suburban high school play, but I got to college and I auditioned for a bunch of shows and I didn't get anything. And the truth is, I love to be on stage. I love to perform. I'm really just not a good singer, like legitimate yeah. fact, I'm not. And people say, do you get nervous to give speeches? And I'll tell you, unless I have to sing, I'm not nervous on a stage. So if you made me wow. sing, I would freak out. So I actually still have nightmares. I have my, my recurring stress dream is that I get up on stage and have to perform Camelot again in my forties. That's amazing. I love, I nothing love, love more than talking to my wife in the mornings and saying, did you have one of those? Like I failed a class high school, like whatever our insecurities were for the high test. school. Yeah. yeah Mine is that I get up. on stage and I don't know my lines. Yeah, it is crazy that those still come up. That's a whole nother podcast that we should probably go into. Never goes away. Last question. You're uh, surrounded, not on social media, but surrounded by a lot of great thought leaders and just wonderful people across the world. What is the best piece of leadership advice, change advice, personal advice that you've come across recently that you just can't get out of your head or that you've just been sharing with folks uh, nonstop the last couple of months? Uh, two. Um, one is from a Rotarian who sat next to me in one of those old Rotary meetings. And he said, keep building your contacts. Everything you will do in your life relies on other people. So that networking piece, and I would say keep building your friendships is number one. It's all about people. Um, and number two is, now I just told you I don't have a to-do list. So take this metaphorically. Yeah, yeah but get out of your head and get onto your to-do list. We, we game things out in our heads over and over and over and over and over. Stop overthinking and just try it, do it, give it a shot. And that has saved me from so much wasted time and effort. If you try something and you hate it, it's over, you can close the door, but the more you overthink it, the bigger and scarier it gets. That is awesome. Well, Lindsay, I promise you I would get you out of here at the top of the hour. I'm going to honor that, which I don't want to, uh, quite honestly. But uh, this has been so fun. Um, I appreciate you uh, more than you'll know, but uh, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate your thought leadership. Um, and I, mo most importantly, I'll just say this, and I probably said earlier, when we created this podcast, we were kind of writing around again. I didn't get into this to like, create a podcast. It was like, how do we use this great content and find these great people to help folks? And so, we talked about change starts here. Part of it is learning how to fail and fail forward and learning that mistakes are great. And as long as you don't keep repeating the same mistakes, but like you got to try. And so without any of that, like being thrown towards you, the fact that you like came on here and you're like, I struggle with this personally. I <laughs> like, I have books that nobody knows about and I love and nobody cares about um, because they never got published like that. That is so um, inspiring to me. And I just appreciate your vulnerability. And I, I, like you said, the, answer a question earlier. I feel like if you continue to lean into that, more and more folks are going to continue to know who you are and follow this great advice that you have for us. Thank you so much. My mom always calls it an AFCO, another freaking growth opportunity. So she'll <laughs> say, oh, there's an AFCO. You got another AFCO there. So yeah, I'm happy to share my AFCOs. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. Mm -hmm.